where the book uh, beginnings, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books written by Moses, the Torah, books of the law, Pentateuch, many names, and then Joshua and Judges, the first couple books of the histories. Been through Joshua, we're in Judges. We, uh, if you're new here, we go uh, basically straight through books of the Bible, and uh, verse by verse, um, and we're in Judges right now, the second part of it actually, and there's little booklets like this on the bottom shelf, uh, on the bookshelf around the corner there, and you can take them for all of our series. And so this is the one for Judges. First part was called Unfaithful, and the second is called Still Unfaithful, because that's what Judges is about. So we're going to get uh, right to work and uh, in, a, in a passage that is, uh, that is pretty awesome. Um, if you look in the study guide, you'll see that, or I noticed, I keep bouncing around and I name things wrong. So uh, the name of this one is actually Faithful Calling, not Faithful Deliverer. That was last week. I screwed it all up, but that's okay. God forgives me, and hopefully you will too. Now, Judges 14, going to uh, begin in verse 1, read the whole darn thing, and then see what God has to teach us. So Judges chapter 14, verse 1, here's what it says. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. You know that's what it sounds like, right? But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all of our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. So his father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. That's a hugely important verse. Can be understood several ways. Verse 5, though. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward him, roaring. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces, as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his mother or father what he had done. And then he went down, and he talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. So after some days, he returned to her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion, and honey. And he scraped it out into his hands, and went on, eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. Ooh, gross. So, verse 10. His father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there, for so the young women, I'm sorry, men used to do. And as soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. And Samson said to them, let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I'll give you 30 tuxedos and 30 awesome suits. Okay, But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, okay, put your riddle, that we may hear it. And he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat, out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days, they could not solve the riddle. So on the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, Entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. These are really upstanding men. 
Have you invited us to here to impoverish us? And Samson's wife wept over him and said, You only hate me. You do not love me. You have put a riddle to my people, and you have not told me what it is. And he said to her, Behold, I have not told my mom and dad. Shall I tell you? She wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted. Wow. Now on the seventh day, he told her because she would not stop crying. I mean, she pressed him hard. And she told the riddle to her people. And the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would have not found out my riddle. He really loved her. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down thirty men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. And in hot anger, he went back to his father's house, and Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, as mysterious and strange as it is. But you say that every word is breathed out by you, and every word is given to build our faith, so you teach us today, Holy Spirit. Move me out of the way and convict those of us who need conviction. Inspire us those who need inspiration or encouragement. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we pray. Amen. Isn't the Word of God just fascinating? I mean, heck, you can just go straight through it and you see the weirdest things you could possibly imagine. Well, last week, we examined the miraculous birth of a guy named Samson. You may have heard of him. And his father, Manoah, and his nameless wife... Samson's mom, who we never get to know uh, who uh, or what her name is, they're told by the angel of the Lord that they are going to have a child. She's been barren up to this time. She's probably stricken in years, which is a nice way of saying she's really old. And they're not really thinking about having kids anymore, or ever for that matter. And the Lord says, you know what, you're going to have a kid. And this kid is going to be devoted to the Lord under this Nazarite vow. You can read that in Numbers chapter 6. And he is going to begin to save Israel from the Philistines. So as he grew up, you can imagine, his parents helped him, because from the womb he was devoted, helped him maintain this lifelong vow that he had as a Nazarite. And he was probably told by mom every day how special he is. All moms do that, but this guy was supposedly going to be really special. So you can imagine his parents... Um, even Samson himself, had certain expectations of how this was all going to work out. Samson's parents probably thought, you know what? This is probably what it's going to look like. It's going to be amazing someday. He's just going to like, just take him out. It's going to be awesome. And Samson, you know, he's probably getting a little bit of a savior complex. You get told you're special long enough, you start to believe it, right? And so he's like, that's right. I'm going to do something pretty awesome. Well, what we see then in chapter 14 is how this all begins to unfold, and whose expectations are met or not. And I think the problem, whenever we look at Samson, is that we have to be really careful focusing too much attention on what Samson does and ignoring what God is doing through Samson. Because the story of Judges, the story of the Bible, is about God's faithfulness, about what God is doing. Samson is not the hero God is. And we very easily look at Samson and go, oh, he's so heroic, he's so these things, and forget actually what the purpose of the story is. So, remember that God hadn't told, or Manoah asked several times, 
his parents and exactly how this was going to work out. How is he going to save? And though they didn't really know what this calling of the Lord meant beyond this vow, they had to make sure he didn't drink wine, that he didn't cut his hair, they didn't touch dead stuff. So other than that, they really didn't know what was going to happen. They had probably certain expectations, and I think they probably assumed or thought what wasn't going to happen. Well, it may not mean this, but it's definitely not going to mean this. Because what happens in his first act to, dare I say, fulfill his calling, to fulfill the mission, is pretty unorthodox. It's definitely unexpected, and I think his parents are pretty disappointed because it's just really undesirable for him. So what happens is Samson has returned from spending the weekend at Timnah, a border town. Okay, If you put the map up there, Timnah is um, in between what would be considered kind of, although it's all controlled by the Philistines, the heart of the Philistine nation is kind of on the coast of, of the Mediterranean Sea. And so Timnah is kind of in the center, you see where Jerusalem is, of, of where Israel and, and Philistine people kind of, Lay out And Timnah is right now controlled by the Philistines. It has a pretty seedy history as a city um, of prostitution and other things. And so he goes down and basically has a great time down at this Philistine city. And his first words when he returns from this city uh, are, I saw a girl, get her for me. Okay, Those are the first words you ever hear from Samson's mouth, this Savior devoted to the Lord which should be somewhat disturbing. He tells his parents, I want you to get her for me, not because you know, he's, a, he's a wimp or something, or he's just afraid to talk to her, but because he actually wants them to formally arrange a marriage. That's kind of what the process would be. So he's like, arrange this marriage, let's go down, throw some change down for the dowry, Dad. I want her. Now, his parents are a bit disturbed and a bit disappointed. And they're rightfully disappointed. They ask him, like, okay, don't you want a nice girl from the neighborhood? I mean, haven't you looked around? We've got some great girls here that aren't pagan Philistines. That would be maybe a great thing. Um, now, God had prohibited marriage to the Canaanite people. In fact, very specifically and several times, he said, do not worship their gods and do not marry the Jebusites, Hittites, you know, Jebusites, all those people. Don't marry them. Technically, though, the Philistines were not one of the seven nations that God had listed. And so, one thing that is true, though, is the Philistines are definitely not worshipers of the one true God. We see that at the end of the story. They worship a God named Dagon. But the Spirit of God has been stirring Samson from a very young age. said that at the end of the chapter 13. Since he was young, And so, for whatever reason, contrary to expectations of his parents, maybe of all the people, because I'm sure they've been talking to their friends and family about how such a special kid he is and what he's going to do, for better or worse, he says, I am doing what is right in my eyes. And we've heard that throughout Judges as a very negative thing. And it's difficult to know whether, as you look at Samson, whether he's just being really lustful, being led by his his sensual nature, or if he's being clever and strategic. It's actually difficult to determine that. And I've sat wondering, maybe it's actually both. And whatever it is, in terms of whether he's just sensual or he's strategic, whether he's lustful or clever, whatever he is, what his right in his eyes is in fact used by God. Doesn't surprise God. 
Now, as I said, Samson's parents assume how they know, as I think many of us do, who either have kids or, or maybe even hear someone feel like they've been called. We kind of know or believe we know how calls work out. And we never presume that the will of God, that the mission of God, that the call of God is going to end up being kind of messy. Right? We, we actually even may not admit it, but I think most people believe or, or think God only works things out in very clean and clear and, and sterile, like, holy ways. That's how God works. You haven't read much of the Old Testament, if that's the case. But the reality is, if that's the way you begin to think in terms of what God devotes somebody, God calls somebody, you're forgetting about something that's really important. It's this little thing called sin. And sin affects everyone. All of humanity, all of creation, all the time, all of us, Samson included. But be very careful holding Samson out here and go, man, that guy's really jacked up. Okay? The truth is, Samson, I think, is a clear picture of who we are, maybe than any other. Samson is, like a Nazarite vow was uh, supposed to be a guy that basically devotes himself. That's what number six says. Samson was devoted by God. From the womb, before he was even born, devoted to God, devoted for God. But that did not make him sinless. That did not make him unbroken. So with Samson, as disturbing as this is going to sound, it get a picture of a man who is both a faithful servant of God, right? Put that on the shelf. A faithful servant of God, and a lustful, disrespectful, flippant, lawless, musclehead gambler with a temper. Like, can you be both? I don't know. You tell me. I'm just the messenger. Right? When God devotes someone to his service, when God sets someone apart for his service, he doesn't select only the sinless, clean servants who only make the clean, righteous decisions. In fact, I got a news flash. There are no such people. All God has to work with is brokenness. I mean, do we get that? We look at situations like, I can't believe God hardened Pharaoh's heart. As if it was soft ever. Right? There are only hard hearts. There are only sinful people. There are only broken. That's all God has to work with. It's not like, Oh, gosh, that world's broken. I'm going to take this clean part over here. It's all dirty. It's all messed up. We should be amazed by God in that He can do something with all this brokenness. But the calling of God, and I, I pray this brings comfort because it brings comfort for me, but I'm pretty, quite frankly, sober to how screwed up I am. Some of you aren't. You're lying to yourself. But the reality is who we are, right? The calling of God takes all that we are, all that we are, and empowers us to be all that you can be. No! Takes all that we are and empowers you to be all that God needs. The story is about God, not us. Who we are, though, like the person we are, is created and shaped in very real ways, godly and ungodly, 
all of which, under the sovereignty of God, work together to shape our service to Him. That might disturb some of you. But we are born in very real times. We are raised by very real parents, for better or worse. Love you, Dad. Right? We are given real personalities with real personality quirks. Right? We all got, you don't think you got them. You think the other person's got little quirks and like strange things. You got them too. We are all given and experience real pain and real pleasure as we go through our experiences in life. We all possess real strengths and real weaknesses that either help or hinder us at times. And God uses all of that. He uses all of that and accomplishes His mission through that. Not just despite it. That's what I see in Scripture. Him taking all of this brokenness and going, yep, made it work. So there, for me, is a comfort in knowing that even if there are times when I, and it's any time that I sin, am governed by my flesh, God never is. God never is. And for those who who get a a sense of call, if you will, for lack of a better term, a sense of, I'm, I'm being set apart, I'm sent on a mission, the enemy wants you to focus on yourself. Wants you to focus on your flesh. Wants you to focus on all of your insufficiencies and all your mistakes and all of your lack of faithfulness and all of your lack of experience and all of your inability to choose the perfectly right thing all the time. So praise God for verse 4. Verse 4 is a comfort. It says, as his parents are freaking out because he's not doing what they feel like this mission is supposed to look like, his father and mother did not know that it mission, the desire, the opportunity, what? I don't know. It was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. Who was? God or Samson? It must be, well, no, wait, it's God. Or is it both? Or is it both? It's like, catch this. This is an amazing truth, and I've really changed my whole view of Samson. But Though Samson's right, okay, his, his view of right, appears to, and it, it definitely appears to ignore God's word, you'll see that it appears to ignore God's law, and to reject God's authority in his life, namely his parents, God is still at work. And by still, I, I don't mean that God is surprised by Samson's sin, and is constantly adjusting his plan to accommodate Samson's screw-ups. Like, oh, Samson, what's you? Okay, that's okay, I'll just this, and that's not how I see it happening. God's not surprised. On the contrary, Samson is unknowingly fulfilling God's plan. And God is not surprised by who Samson is. He is not surprised by how Samson thinks. He is not surprised by what Samson says. He is not surprised by how he feels or what he does. God is in control and the story unfolds exactly how he wants it to. And you read it and you go, but it's so yucky. Yeah, God works through the mess, doesn't he? That we make. That we make. Samson is without 
question a maverick. He is a, a rebel driven by his own selfish desires at times, doing whatever he pleases, ignoring the claims of God in his life, and yet he ends up doing God's will. That's how big God is. And that while that doesn't excuse our responsibility, it certainly comforts my screw-ups. And it doesn't mean that Samson's parents are wrong to object to what he's doing, or that Samson is virtuous in his bad desires. That's not what I'm trying to say. It means that neither Samson's foolishness or stubbornness will ever prevent God from completing his plan. That is the nature of a call, I believe. It is weird. It is unorthodox. It is unexpected. It is God calling people that you go, but they're not. I mean, do you know their story? Look what they chose. Yes. That is almost exclusively how God works. That's the nature of a call. And as we learn more about Slimeball Samson, we begin to see, like, okay, well, how, how is he going to fulfill that call? How is he actually going to accomplish this, this one-man army, if you will? And I think when we see him, we go, man, I just probably should have used someone else, right? He just seems kind of dirty. Like, I mean, yeah, he can make some bad decisions, but he makes some really bad ones. But let's not forget why he has to choose Samson in the first place, right? Why does he have to, like, bring this guy, make a deliverer from scratch, the problem is that Israel, in Israel at this time, no one is stepping up to complete God's mission. No one is. No one is stepping up to fulfill God's commands. No one is stepping up to free God's people. There are no saviors, you know, thrown in their applications. And so God is the one who calls. God is the one who raises someone up for mission. God is the one then who empowers them to fulfill it. Yes, He calls people that are odd to do that. He called to plant this church a high school teacher without a clue, a PUD lineman, an Edward Jones guy. I mean, come on, I could go through it. It's not like we have all these grand, you know, details on our resume. In fact, when I was going through Acts 29, I tried to talk them out of letting me do it. I'm like, I'm not qualified. I'm like, gee, whatever. And I am comforted by the fact that Tim Keller said it, I think, best. That God does not call those who are qualified. He qualifies those who are called. And I believe that He does this by sending His Spirit to ultimately affect change and to move people. That the ability to fulfill God's calling has absolutely nothing to do with us. So with Samson, we see that God gives His Spirit to him at a very specific time to act. God's calling doesn't mean you just start thinking different or talking different. It means you actually radically act different. And we see that with Samson. And it doesn't even mean when, when God's Spirit comes upon you, for lack of a better term, or, or inspires you or, or initiates that move in you, it doesn't mean that you even know exactly where to act. But when it is time to act, God's Spirit shows up and He equips you to do what He wants you to do. And that's what we see with Samson. Like, what? why is God giving Samson the Spirit? What does He want this guy to do? Well, I have learned that when people are being used by God, it often makes me or others uncomfortable. They show up and they, um, they stir you. Maybe they even irritate you in ways you don't like. Like that person in your life right now, 
I often wonder, that person that irritates you the most, that's like just, and, you know, they're a believer, but it's just you're getting irritated with the Holy Spirit trying to change you through this person that's making you uncomfortable. I'm not saying it is. I'm saying it's possible. Because Samson is given the Spirit here, I believe, to provoke tension between the Israels and the Philistines. That's the whole point of, of empowering him. It's ultimately God using Samson, who is this perfect guy for the job, who um, Jeremy from our road group calls the beautifully broken guy. He's the perfect job, a guy for the job that God needs to get done. And what is that? Namely, he uses Samson to pick a fight with the Philistines. And he's the only guy that can do it. Why does he want to pick a fight with the Philistines? Because Israel is refusing to fight for themselves. They are comfortable living under the Philistines. They like the Philistines. So God raises up one man, not an army, to wake up his people. To stir them up to the fact they're under oppression. That these people are not their friends. They in fact hate them and want them destroyed. Which is what sin ultimately is think it's your friend, it offers you these promises, and it's trying to kill your relationship with God, your relationship with your wife or husband, your relationship with your family, your relationship with work, everything. So if God doesn't send this screwed up, sensual, spirit-filled Savior to make things uncomfortable for everyone, nothing is going to change. Lukewarm spiritual comfort is the favorite tool of a very hungry enemy. An enemy that, wouldn't you know, Peter calls a hungry lion looking for someone to eat. And so the spirit that's been stirring in Samson a long time comes upon him in a very powerful way, it says in, in verse 5, and you see at the very end too, in a very unpredictable, he wasn't like, oh, Lord, give me the spirit now that the lion's here just comes upon him, all by God, sent by God to do what God wants in a perfectly timed way, and he gives him strength to rip apart this lion. You go, that's a weird story. It is. And I think we have imagined, I don't know what you imagine, but probably most of your picture Bibles as kids and the things have Samson as like this huge muscle-bound guy that can barely like put his arms together, right? He's got his little toothpick legs and little like, you know, he's always shirtless or uh, some kind of sash, like a gold thing, like Hercules, right? He's like, that's right. Now, I imagine for a second that, her, that um, Samson doesn't look at all like that. That he looked like just a normal guy. Because I think that might be the better picture of it. Why? Because a huge, muscle-bound, Hulk Hogan, Arnold Schwarzenegger level guy, like, you know, maybe he could tear apart a line. You know, he kind of like... That guy should be able to do that. He's huge. He's like gigantic. He's like one big muscle, right? But if he is just a normal little average dude ripping apart a line, you're like, oh, God had to do that. God definitely had to do that. See, the Spirit of God shows up not on the guys that you go, you know, that are highly educated and they write books, although I think, you know, they're educated and they write books. The Spirit of God for me shows up when you see a guy that's like, no way you could do that unless the Spirit of God was there. That's, for me, the call of God. Where he takes, you know, electricians and sends them off to do mission work in Haiti. There's no way but the word, 
the Spirit of God that would move a guy to do that. There's no way it would take the Spirit of God and some of the people that were involved in this, and you go, this is crazy, we're starting in the garage. Yeah, the Spirit of God better show up, but it's ain't going to work. There's nothing to, I'm telling you, there's nothing to attract people to this church. We're in like a, you know, a strip mall. There's a drug house right back here, right? There's probably a couple around here. We've got a bowling alley. Guys selling porn over in the gas station over there. I mean, there's nothing that we go, man, I'm going to go check out that church, right? If anything is going to succeed here, it's going to be by the Spirit of God. And I love that. And so Samson, you, want, you don't want to envision like this big, you want guys like, and then suddenly like this lion, he's like, and you're like, oh my gosh, how'd that guy do that, right? That's what I think happens. But you still have to go, why a lion? Hold on to your hats, right? This is going to be good. So, it says, Samson went down with his father to Timnah. They came to the vineyards of Timnah. Behold, a young lion came toward him, roaring. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him at that moment. So he didn't say, oh, give me the Spirit. Just came upon him, which means God wanted this to happen, which is important. And all he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion to pieces. One tears a young goat. Doesn't tell mom and dad what he had done. I can imagine all kinds of reasons why not. Went down. Talk with a woman, right? Goes from looking at her to talking to her, like, she sounds good, she's right, right? Then he returns some the next day or a couple days later to take her, to have her as his wife, and he stops to look at the carcass. And behold, there is a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. Okay, right there you should go, that's weird. It is weird, okay? It's not like, well, that kind of magical, it's weird, it's just weird. He scraped it out of his hands. He went on eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them. And they ate. But he did not tell them they had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. So my whole point in saying the calling is empowered by the Spirit to say he did this because the Spirit wanted him to. Not just for him, but for us. This is God's story. It's weird, but it's God's story. Many people focus on the fact that Samson, he probably broke his vow. Like they want to make Samson look worse. Well, he probably broke his vow because he touched a dead body. which number six said you couldn't do. They also argue that, well, he doesn't tell his parents where he got the honey. That's because he's afraid that, you know, they'll be upset that he broke his vow. See, the problem with that is the text doesn't say that. As good as that might feel, I was kind of even, well, yeah, that makes sense. The text doesn't say that. Say he scraped it into his hand, which means he could use a stick. He's a lot of things. Didn't have to touch it. But again, if you start focusing just on what Samson does, you will lose sight of what God is doing by this lion and this weird riddle that we will see. Because the story, as I said, does get weirder. So he goes down, returns to Timnah to get her. He has a seven-day wedding feast because it's a, it's a bridal feast, basically. He will, um, they will be married on, after the seventh day. As the people start seeing you know, Samson show up, they bring in 30 Philistine groomsmen which are really probably more like bodyguards to protect them from Samson. So it's at this time, though, that he proves that he is much more than just a musclehead. He's actually quite clever. And he makes a wager and tells them a riddle, which is odd. So you've got this story, this devoted savior. He goes down. I want woman, right? Walks back, rips a line in half. Mmm, honey. Then goes down. Hey, guys, here's a riddle for you. That's weird. Hold on to your hats, okay? We've, we've looked about the nature of God's call, right? We looked at like the power of God's call, and now I want to try and use the story of the lion 
the riddle in the wardrobe. I think that's pretty clever, right? Lion, riddle, the wardrobe. To show the purpose of God's call. The purpose of God's call. What is the purpose of calling somebody, of, of devoting them like this? Okay, check this out. This is God's story. So the Philistines are not Canaanites. Okay, we talked about the Canaanites. Canaanites. They're not Canaanites. They're actually Egyptians. What do you mean? Well, if you look in Genesis 10, which you don't need to now, Noah had three sons. One was named Ham. He was cursed. Ham had four sons named Cush, Put, Canaan, and Egypt. Yes, they were people before they were nations. Okay? From Canaan came all of the Jebusite, Hittites, blah, 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 ites, all the ites that Joshua and Israel destroyed, right? And from Egypt came all these people and the Philistines. So the Canaanites and the Philistines are cousins, but the Philistines are Egyptian. Why does that matter? Oh, hold on. The time of the judges began when a generation of people forgot who God is and what he had done. That's where things went south. And so, specifically, they are not remembering the redemption from Egypt. The redemption from slavery in Egypt, where God declared his name in the boldest of ways, bringing all kinds of destruction onto the greatest nation at that time, rescuing his people. Now, through Moses, if you read in the story of the Exodus, which we preached on it, and you can get, I don't think we have a booklet, but you can hear the sermons, God delivered his people from the Egyptians with ten plagues. And these plagues were not just random things like, let me do something that's kind of mean. They were ten plagues that were designed to address or to mock or to reveal the powerlessness of specific gods that they worshipped. They didn't just throw frogs in because they thought it would be a great thing, or gnats. They were mocking. God, through his power, was mocking their gods, which had no power to stop it. And so they were all designed to reveal God's name and ultimately to show the falseness of Egyptians' gods. Now, throughout the Old Testament, God, and this is not in Judges, it's throughout the Bible, constantly going back to Israel. Remember your salvation. Remember what I did to bring you out of Egypt. Remember, in fact, the law of God, you may not know this, in Leviticus chapter 18, I believe it is, the very first verse says, this is why the law of God is written. It says it's to protect you from becoming like two people, the Egyptians and the Canaanites. That's the whole purpose of the law, ultimately, in terms of comparing them to the other peoples. I don't want you to be like those peoples. I want you to be a holy people. My people, don't be like them. So where are the Israelites right now? Well, they are back under slavery in Egypt, acting like Canaanites. So you have to come full circle in terms of back where they started from, when God originally saved them, and God is once again telling the full story of redemption through the simple line in this riddle. Now, as for the lion, the word for carcass in the Bible is actually the same word to describe a fallen nation. And in Ezekiel 32, yeah, stick with me, the Bible has Pharaoh calling or self-describing his Egypt as a nation of lions. So through the hands of the spirit-filled man, the nation of Egypt is again judged by God. But more than that, their gods are mocked. The riddle. God, why is he going to throw down a riddle? That seems so random. Is he just like, I mean, that's what they go like, oh, he's just a gambler. 
That's why. He just wants to get. No, I don't think so. The riddle only emphasizes the same point. Have you ever heard of the Sphinx? The Sphinx is the, one of the greatest icons in um, Egypt. In fact, it's said that it rests between the two periods, and from it flow actually the Nile, or actually flows honey, life. That's a whole other part of it. But the Sphinx is the man or face of a man and the body of a lion. And the Sphinx is known as the master of riddles. Using riddles to ultimately guard his territory. And you can see that in, in ancient writings, I believe Sophocles is one of them where it comes up. But I'm just not a very good English teacher. Add Joe. He'll tell you. All right, he's a better English teacher than me. So, but what you see is this huge mockery, this huge story of redemption where God once again is saying, I am God. And these gods are nothing. And I will destroy them. Samson's mission is to declare the rule of God by destroying the oppressor, mocking their false gods, and revealing the supremacy of Yahweh. And you go, that is awesome. I love how that all works together. You study your Bible well, Sam. What the snarf does that have to do with me? Here's what it has to do. We talk about the nature of God's call and the the unorthodox nature of it, the messiness of it, if you will, the empowerment of God's call, that God's spirit is the one that does it. But then you talk about the purpose of God's call. call. The reality is the spirit of God never empowers us for ourselves. The primary purpose of all service, of all things we would consider service to God, whether it be feeding the homeless, whether it be leading a Bible study, whether that be planting a church or going on a mission somewhere, whatever you would describe service to God, the primary purpose of all service to God, of all callings, of all devotion to God, is to proclaim His salvation, His greatness, and His glory. That is the point. And if someone feels called to do anything else, that is not for that primary purpose, then it might certainly not be sinful, but it's not the call of God. And there are many good works that can be done to help bring hope into what is a dead world. Lots of things. Many good things are done by many people and ministries and organizations that have nothing to do with the Lord. But I would say that all things that are done politically, material, economically, medically, physically, emotionally, they cannot heal a dead people living in a dead world. They can't. God is on mission here and now to bring humanity life. Not just to bring them comfort in their death. He is here to bring life. And so the purpose of his devotion, the purpose of his call is to make much of him because that is where life is found. And so you see this image that's very metaphorical, but just as Samson reaches into the lion, right? You have God reaching down into what is a dead world. And through his Savior, bringing out a sweetness, a life-giving sweetness that blesses Samson, that blesses his family, and that ultimately blesses 
the world by destroying the oppressor. Crazy. And in the end, what you see is Jesus screaming. By screaming, I mean you just can't get beyond it. You have these 30 men, right, who are supposed to be Samson's friends. They reveal themselves to be just as they are. They're enemies. They're just brutal. I think the, if nothing else, we see that the world is always your friend to threaten their security. And the spiritual word of God, which Paul says cannot be understood or accepted by natural men, will always threaten men's security. So in their confusion, not being able to understand, in order to get the answer to the riddle, they threaten his bride and her father. So having more fear than faith, his wife weeps for seven days, and as any man would, he breaks. All right? I'm telling you, just stop your crying. And he tells her, he tells what maybe we could describe as his closest friend, and he is betrayed by her. And the Spirit of the Lord, after telling them, you guys cheated, rushes upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. Now, put the map up again. Cities are important. So he's in Timnah. That's where they tick him off. And he travels quite a ways to go to that city. And again, if you only focus on Samson, you'll miss the story that God is telling. Why that city? Doing something just brutal, or is there purpose behind it? Well, the reality is, they're at war. The Philistines are invaders. So anything he does in terms of like killing people, especially Philistines, is um, okay. They are at a state of war, though Israel doesn't think that. But he doesn't attack the Philistines in the Timnah. As I said, he travels west, and he goes into the heart of their kingdom, and he attacks what the Bible describes as one of their most powerful of five cities, Ashkelon. So you do a little research on that city, and you go, what is this city about? Why would God pick this city? Well, it's a city that is mentioned in an inscription at Karnak in Egypt, having been taken at one point by King Ramses II, and he is known as the oppressor of the Hebrews. Again, a condemnation on the Egyptians. And ultimately, redemption story being told again. And as you see the story of Samson, you see that everyone's expectations are blown of how this thing is going to go. The reader's expectations, like what is going on, his parents' expectations, the Israelites' expectations, the Philistines' expectations. But God's expectations are right in line. He knows exactly what he's doing. And what he's doing through Samson, this guy, this sinless, broken guy, set apart for the service of God, is pointing in a way, unlike the other judges, not as clear, though they do too, towards the Savior that is coming. The one who is truly called. The one who is truly empowered. The one who truly will live fully the purposes of God and deal with sin forever. Once and for all. Think about this, right? Jesus comes in, enters into what is our comfort, and we are comfortable with our sin. We are comfortable with not having to deal with it, not having to change, and he makes us uncomfortable, like I talked about last week. If Jesus 
doesn't make you a little uncomfortable, right? It's like C.S. Lewis talking about Aslan the lion. Like, I want to be near him, but I'm scared to death. You see that in Samson. Jesus entering into a dead world, right? Jesus, the true Nazarite, if you will, the true Nazarene, devoted from the womb. Jesus, who confuses his parents. They think he's psycho. And they know what he's supposed to do. They blow their expectations. Like, I didn't think you were going to save this way. Jesus, who was often accused of breaking God's law, but never did. Jesus, whose words and parables and, dare I say, riddles, were confusing and hated by the people. So much, they wanted to kill him. Jesus, who was betrayed by a friend. And Jesus, who ultimately destroys the enemy of God. Jesus, the one who saves us from our idolatry by fighting the fight that we wouldn't. And just when you think like Samson, like, oh, you lost the bet, but he wins the war. He loses his little 30 garments, but he goes into the heart of the Philistines and picks a fight that they have to fight. And just when you saw Jesus die on the cross and think, oh, Satan won, I don't think so. You might have bruised his heel, but Jesus crushes Satan's head. So here's the question for you. Jesus did all of that for a particular purpose. And there's always two people here when I preach. There's one person here who, quite frankly, needs to put their faith in Jesus. You have put your faith in yourself. You have put your faith in another person. You have put your security and hope and meaning and joy in something, some aspect of creation that I'll tell you right now is going to fail you. You are a sinner. You are broken. You need forgiveness, and Jesus offers that. Through his death and through his resurrection, he offers life. But there's another kind of person here, which is you, Christian who have said you trust in that. Some of you need to be called to Jesus, and some you need to be called to the mission that you actually don't see that you have. I actually think there might be some Samsons out here. A lot of them. I mean, what if you were Samson? Would you live your life differently if you knew that God had set you apart from the world with a specific purpose? Would you live your life if you knew that? 1 Peter 2.9 But you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. I love that part. You read the rest? That. Here's the mission. This is what you're to do. This is your calling that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. That's the purpose of it all. God in human flesh entered into this dead, decaying world to serve you so that you might serve Him. And instead of unleashing His wrath upon us, He took it upon Himself. He became dead like the world, but without that death, There's no way the sweetness would come forth, and so it did. 
And so for those of us who think we don't have a calling, maybe some of you on the cusp are like, you know what, I feel, I'm thinking about doing something crazy. I don't know. Let me just give you a little bit of encouragement. Some of us need to be flat out crucified with Christ. And some of us need to stick some stuff on the cross and crucify it with Jesus as well. The nature of the call. A lot of us have expectations, and some of us need to kill some of those expectations. The ones that are telling you are unworthy, ill-equipped, incapable, inexperienced. You need to change your expectations for the mission, because what you might be asked to do may be uncomfortable and orthodox, and you may very well not be ready for it. Most likely you're not. Some of us need to kill what is our self-dependence, right? i got to fulfill this mission myself. No, eh, wrong. Put your work on the cross and let Jesus' Spirit come in and help you fulfill that mission. And some of us, maybe the most of us, need to kill our selfish purposes for being on mission. The purpose for any call, for any mission, for any service is to glorify God. You have a mission. And all of us need to submit all that we are, all of our time, all of our experiences, all of our skills, all of our mistakes, all of our resources, all of our strengths, all of our weaknesses, and trust that God can and will accomplish His mission through us. The calling of Samson should encourage you. So I'm going to pray. And I'm going to be up here after uh, the service to pray with some of you who may sense that call. And I'm not talking about call to go out to Ethiopia. Maybe that is you. I'm talking about seeing yourself as set apart with a mission now, wherever you're at. Seeing yourself as willing to submit to wherever God's going to send you and stop making excuses for, well, what I think is right might not be right. You know what? God's bigger than that. But I don't have this. God's bigger than that. I don't know if my motivations are pure. God's bigger than that. Trusting Him with all that you are, even the quirkiness of your personality, the brokenness of your experiences to say, God brought all that into my life to be used, and now I'm ready to serve you. Don't come to the table and confess His name as Lord if you are not willing to serve Him and how He's calling you to serve. Don't come to the table. I don't know where He's leading you. But I'd love to pray with you about it, to encourage you to follow him, though you don't know where it's going, and though it makes you uncomfortable.